Today on Regionally Speaking, Indiana Humanities Director of Grants George Hanlon is with us to talk about how two local nonprofits received action grants to provide public humanities programs right here in Northwest Indiana. Indiana Dunes National Park Superintendent Paul Labovitz recently joined us to talk about how the organization plans to use the $16 million they received as part of the Great American Outdoors Act. But up first, Karen Toring is the founder of the Gary International Black Film Festival. This week, they will kick off their 12th annual affair with what they are calling an all-black pre-funk art experience at the Railcat Stadium. The highly anticipated festival will feature both virtual as well as unique in-person offerings all weekend long. All of that and more on this edition of Regionally Speaking after the news. The 12th annual Geary International Black Film Festival commences Friday, October 7th with a special opening night red carpet in partnership with the Urban League Young Professionals of Northwest Indiana, featuring a special tribute to Gary Goff champion Ann Gregory and a special screening of the film Playing Through. The 2022 Fest features both virtual and unique in-person offerings across the city of Geary, including a drive-in movie night, as well as a closing night award ceremony featuring a special presentation to the inaugural GIBFF Fellows. The 12th annual Geary International Black Film Festival stays true to its roots as an international diaspora festival with narrative and documentary films from nine countries across the black diaspora. Joining us today is festival founder and proud Geary native, Karen Toring. Karen, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thanks for having me. Karen, so you join us each year to share the details of what this year will mark the 12th annual Geary International Black Film Festival. Before we get into what you and your team have planned for October 7th through October 9th, for our listeners that may not have heard of this cultural event, can you share what is the Gary International Black Film Festival? And along with that, please take a moment to share your connection to the region and why you found it crucial to host it year after year in your hometown of Gary. And I should note that I'm only asking you this question because you have a very busy schedule hosting and supporting the arts on the West Coast. Is that correct? I do. I, uh, right now, I live in Seattle, Washington. But I grew up in Gary, and I graduated from Emerson High School, and then I went to uh, Purdue University down at the West Lafayette campus. So Gary is my home, uh, and that's kind of how this festival came about. Um, a group of friends and I were talking about the work that I do out here in Seattle, and uh, it was really more of a challenge, you know, they, because my friends were like, nothing like this will ever happen in Gary. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll bet it can. And the first year we, you know, we didn't know what, what we were doing, you know, basically, and got together, um, put a few films together, reached out to some filmmakers that we knew, both national and local. And uh, did the first Gary International Black Film Festival uh, 11 years ago. This is our 12th year. So that our listening audience can just get a bit of insight into who Karen is, can you please share where did your love for film begin? You know, a lot of people ask me that question, and they think that I am a filmophile, you know, a person right. who studies film and, and, you know, researches and has a deep background in history and film. 
And that's not necessarily the case. It's more of, I am a big film fan. I love watching films. And even more uh, so than that, I love watching films with other people and talking about, you know, what we saw and what we experienced. And that's kind of how I began starting to curate films here in Seattle. And then, you know, just took that same knowledge that I built working with uh, the Langston Hughes African-American Film Festival, now the Seattle Black Film Festival, and translated that to the work that we do in Gary. So it's really, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, like a, a, a highfalutin film festival. It's really more a festival of, of friends, you know. It's, it's a people's film festival. Karen, for some, seeing a woman that looks like you from the region and in the context that we are speaking of today of planning and organizing a major film festival, that is almost unthinkable. And what I mean by that is that you think about Northwest Indiana. Sure, it's right in the backyard of Chicago, a pretty booming town right now for filmmaking. But there is no real pipeline to the creative industry for people right here in Northwest Indiana and particularly in Gary. To that point, representation matters, right? So can you explain the importance of festivals such as the Gary International Black Film Festival? Yeah, and emphasis on the black. Let's start with that. You know, uh, there are no working cinemas in the city. And so uh, folks who live in Gary literally have to go out of town to watch a film. And then all of the content that is, uh, you know, that is in theaters right now are basically built for a mass audience, not necessarily... Uh, people who look like me and and black folks in Gary, uh, and even the content that we get, you know, uh, with all of the channels on on cable and off air channels, you know, representation really really does matter. And so, what we try to do with the Gary International Black Film Festival is to to bring that representation forward for people in Gary to see, so they don't have to go out of town. To see, you know, very nuanced and a, and a broad section of stories about people who look like us, so they can see themselves represented in a lot of different ways. In the mainstream media, we have more of a two-dimensional representation of what blackness is. But when you look at independent film and independent content creators, you recognize that when we tell our stories. We tell a much more nuanced and much more layered stories about what it is to be black or what it is like being black, living in a world that doesn't necessarily support our blackness. We're speaking with Karen Toring, Gary Native and founder of the Gary International Black Film Festival. Okay, Karen, and to your point, like in years past, this year the festival will host films from around the globe displaying the black diaspora. The diversity of the film selected is sort of an opportunity to see the complexity of the Black experience. So when you and your team sit down to choose what films to show as part of the festival, what do you guys even look for? Well, that's interesting because uh, in the last, I think, three years, we've actually opened up the selection process to the community. So we work with uh, a group of volunteers many of, of everyday people, you know, and some people who have, you know, expertise in the filmmaking industry, et cetera. And collectively, that group will review films that are submitted. We usually open up the submissions 
sometime in late May or June. And uh, over the summer, we look at films that come in through submissions. And the, it's that committee, that group of people that actually uh, tell us which films they like. And from that selection of films is what we curate the festival from. Oh, wow. That's a quite interesting. And for me, I'm not that familiar with organizing film festivals, but it seems like it's a unique opportunity, correct? It really is. And, you know, what it does is it sort of uh, takes the mystery out of the film festival and puts it in the hands of people who are most likely to come, right? You know, a lot of film festivals will, you know, will will use sort of experts and industry folks. And what we realize is that we want people like us, you know, everyday folks, to love and come to the festival. You know, watch the films that that both that best resonates with them. And, you know, if you have that lived experience, why not you or why not your neighbor down the street or, you know, so like a good half of the folks who are actually reviewing the films are from Gary and the greater uh, Lake County area. Right. And it seems with this new approach, it seems that it goes back to the original format of watching film with friends, correct? Right. You know, and that's what we want this festival to feel like. The filmmakers also appreciate that because they know that people that are coming to this particular festival are coming for them. They're coming to see films that are made by and about people who look like them. So speaking of the film festival itself, the 12th annual Gary International Black Film Festival, in partnership with the Urban League Young Professionals of Northwest Indiana, will feature a special tribute to Gary Golf Champion and Gregory on Friday, October the 7th, with a red carpet reception and screening. So why don't you go ahead and take a moment and walk us through what the weekend will actually look like? All right. I, I'm happy to do that. So, the you know, the film festival actually starts on Thursday the 6th with a, uh, yeah, we're having a fun little party over at the Gary South Shore Railcat party deck. Oh, uh, nice. Where we'll be able to experience art from local artists, a DJ, have some little bites, and then we're going to show some snippets of some of the films that they will be able to see. So we're going to have like a pre-funk kickoff party. And during the day on Thursday, people can actually start watching films because this year, just like last year, we're doing a hybrid film festival. And I think a lot of film festivals are moving to that format permanently. In 2020, you know, when the pandemic hit, film festivals are scrambling because, you know, a film festival is technically an in-person experience. Uh, And so a lot of our film festivals went online and so did we. So 2020, our festival was all online. In 2021, we took a little bit of a risk. We felt like people had, you know, sort of, you know, wanted to get out and wanted to, you know, see films in person. And so we did a few films in person and most of the festival hybrid. And that worked out really well. And we learned that we were getting audiences from around the world. And so we've adopted that hybrid format going forward. So this year, everything that you can see in person, you will also be able to see online. And so we'll start off on, on Thursday with, uh, with the kickoff party at the Railcat Stadium. On Friday, we'll have the traditional red carpet experience where you can come in, 
walk the red carpet. We'll have a very special exhibit uh, for Anne Gregory, who's featured in our opening night film. It's called Playing Through. On Saturday, we kick off the day with virtual films that you can watch at home. And then we want you to come down to Indiana University at Savannah Hall in the Berglund Auditorium, where we will be showing a film called We're Still Here, which is about a documentary about Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And then following that, we'll have a special presentation at one o'clock of our Real Rundown Fellows. This is our first inaugural fellowship that we did with Dion Taylor and his company, Hidden Empire. Dion Taylor is also one of Gary's own, and he has a lot of films that you've probably seen, like Meet the Black, Supremacy, Traffic, and a whole bunch of films. And Saturday is also Dion Taylor Day, so folks can online watch our Dionathon. So that's three of Dion's movies that you can get for the price of one. And then Saturday night, we have a drive-in theater uh, on the campus of Indiana University. Uh, we did it last year. People loved it. And we'll be doing that again Saturday night at 6 o'clock. And we'll be showing this incredible film uh, starring Saul Williams called Aquila's Escape. And then on Sunday, we start again with virtual films. And then we have some in-person films. I think we have... Uh, on Sunday, we're, we have a film uh, called It's Different in Chicago. That may be Saturday, so check the schedule to make sure. Um, and then we have uh, panels that are happening on Sunday. But the big, big thing that's happening on Sunday is our awards ceremony. So it's packed. So I, I say put your, put your sneakers on because yeah. either you're going to you know sit at home and enjoy all of the content that we have online or you can come down to Indiana University Northwest and watch it in person, which is my preference. I love watching films with other folks. Right, because you can kind of high five each other or cry yes. together, and, and, or and be like, "Girl, did you see that? Right, did you see what I thought he did." Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. just makes the movie watching experience so much more exciting, at least for me. So, so for a lot of the filmmakers whose body of work will be highlighted throughout this weekend, it is their first film and or it will be the first time their work will be shown on this scale. Mm -hmm. I, I guess you can even submit that it is a pat on the back and probably that little extra push that they need to continue to master their craft. Would exactly. you agree? And have you had any feedback from filmmakers of, of past festivals? Oh, yeah, we get feedback from filmmakers all the time. Uh, you know, and for the ones who uh, are emerging and, and this is their first time, you know, screening at a festival, this is, you know, their chance to get real and authentic feedback from, from the audiences. And many of the filmmakers that have been at the Gary International Black Film Festival have gone on to, to bigger and better things. And, you know, we love to tell the story about the very first film. I was going to ask you. Showed. Let's hear. I was going <laughs> to yeah, ask yeah. you. Go ahead. Yes. We love telling that story, right? Mm -hmm. The very first film that we showed at the Gary International Filmmaker was by a little-known filmmaker. This was <laughs> like, I think, her second film called, uh, I Will. the name of the film was I Will Follow, and the name of the filmmaker is Ava DuVernay. And so one of the things that that tells you is that small festivals like the Gary International Black Film Festival that, that exist in the shadow of, you know, larger film festivals like the 
Chicago International Film Festival and Black Harvest Film Festival over in Chicago still have the ability to bring that kind of content from filmmakers that you may not know right now, but someday you will know. And uh, we have a lot of those stories uh, from the 12 years of the filmmaking that we've done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a testament to the hard work that you and your team do. So, And I always like to ask you to, to share that story because it's, it's an exciting, yeah, you, awesome you, story. Honestly, it's, it's, we don't even know. You know, I mean, this, take this film that we're playing opening night, mm-hmm. playing through. The filmmakers submitted it with, with very little fanfare. And when we watched it, we were like, oh, my goodness, this is a film about somebody from Gary that none of us knew about. You know, and Anne Gregory broke all kinds of records and broke the color barrier at Gleason Park, even. And, you know, we grew up in Gary and had no idea that she existed. So we never know what's going to come to the festival and we never know who's going to come to the festival. And, you know, we never know what their trajectory is after the film festival is going to be. So, you know, I just tell people, stay tuned, because you are going to see somebody you saw in Gary on film festival weekend, you will see in Hollywood someday. That I can guarantee you. Karen, in the time that we have left, you touched on this earlier, that like in the previous two years since the pandemic, the festival will continue to offer both in-person as well as virtual opportunities to participate as well as support these emerging artists. The festival will play host to dozens of films, panels, and live stream events, as you shared, as well as the opportunities for in-person screenings and sort of kind of high-fiving your, your seatmate as well. Can you provide the details on how to purchase tickets for the 12th annual Gary International Black Film Festival? The simple way is to just go to GaryBlackFilmFest.org. From there, you can either buy a full festival pass, an opening night ticket, see the schedule, and all of that is a click away. Now, for the in-person events, you can buy tickets either online or you can buy tickets at the door for those events. But... um, If you uh, want to buy a pass for the whole festival, you can do that and see both the in-person and the virtual films at your leisure. We also have a virtual pass for folks that just want to see all of the virtual films. So, yeah, there are a lot of options, and you can find all of those options at GaryBlackFilmFest.org. Karen, I know that you do not do the work you do putting on the Gary International Black Film Festival for the accolades, for the honor or recognition, rather for the love of film, but also for providing a platform for emerging artists. But most importantly, you do it for the love of your hometown of Gary. So we thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Oh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to come and share with y'all and y'all are always so gracious and we appreciate it. Karen Toring is a Gary native and the founder of the Gary International Black Film Festival. For more information, you can visit www.garyblackfilmfest.com. For Lakeshore Public Radio, I'm Dee Dotson. Humanities organizations are the heart and soul of the Hoosier State. Indiana Humanities recently awarded 15 nonprofits with more than $67,000 in grants, and two local nonprofits are grants recipients. Projects supported with the Indiana Humanities Grants include a reading and discussion program that engages Northwest Indiana audiences in the story of civil rights pioneer Claudette Colvin, as well as a monthly discussion led by a guest speaker that sheds light 
on the region's rich cultural and environmental history. Joining us today to talk about the grants is George Hamlin, the Director of Grants for Indiana Humanities. George, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. It's my pleasure, Dee. Thanks for having me. So, George, more than a dozen museums and libraries, as well as other organizations throughout the Hoosier State, have received grants from Indiana Humanities to provide public humanities programs in their communities, including right here in Northwest Indiana. But before we talk about how these grants will benefit the community members right here in the region, please take a moment to share with our listening audience that may be unfamiliar with your organization, what is Indiana Humanities? I am glad to do that, Dee. Uh, Indiana Humanities is a, is a nonprofit organization. We're headquartered in Indianapolis, but we serve the entire state of Indiana, and we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year, so it's sort of a monumental year for us. Our goal is to promote humanities across the state of Indiana, subjects like history and literature and archaeology and languages and philosophy, and to make sure that Hoosiers across the state have access to humanities programming and that they use the humanities to think, to read, and to talk, uh, which is our core mission to encourage, to encourage Hoosiers to think, read, and talk through the humanities. We do that in a, a couple of ways. We have a programming team here in Indianapolis that uh, designs and develops and implements programs that we put on all across the state. Uh, for example, we recently hosted a, a film festival celebrating Indiana waterways, and we had a screening up in Gary in the Miller Beach section. I had a great turnout for that. Um, and we do other programs like that all across the state. And then another way that we get our our, our humanities programming around the state is to offer grants. We're a staff of 12 and we're serving 6.8 million Hoosiers. So it's really hard for us to be everywhere and to reach everyone. So one of the things that we do is we take a pool of money uh, in our budget and we make it available to organizations like libraries and historical societies and museums to think about their own programs and develop ideas and then they can apply to us for funds to implement those programs in their communities. So, you know, I'm listening to you explain the work that your organization does. And for me, whenever I hear humanities, I always hear arts and humanities used in unison. But your organization, Indiana Humanities, is a statewide nonprofit that infuses humanities, as you shared, into our daily lives. But it does not include the performance art. Is that correct? That is correct, and that's, you raise a very good point. We have to explain this all the time uh, and clarify, and of course, there's always some gray areas, so I'll say that. But generally speaking, uh, we have a sister organization over at the state, uh, the Indiana Arts Commission. It's actually a state agency. We're a nonprofit, but uh, the Indiana Arts Commission is a state agency, and its whole mission is to promote the arts across the state. And they focus a lot on the visual arts, um, the display of arts, the performing arts, things like that. And we at Indiana Humanities generally stay away from that. Um, We focus on other cultural topics, again, like history and literature and archaeology and philosophy and ethics. So we we try to avoid um, um, stepping into the arts realm, although, again, there's a lot of gray areas. We do focus on sometimes art history and art theory and art criticism. We consider those to be the humanities. I always say to people, if you're putting on a production of, say, um, Hamlet, we're not going to support on um, the production, but if you want to bring in a scholar to talk about the themes of Hamlet and help lead a post-production discussion, that's something that would fall into the realm of the humanities. But you're ac- ac- absolutely correct, Dee, that generally speaking, we um, don't provide funding or support for arts programming. 
So we're speaking about funding and we're speaking specifically today for the purpose of our conversation. We're going to be speaking about grants that your organization yeah. provides. So Indiana Humanities recently awarded two local organizations with action grants. And before we talk about those organizations, can you for a moment explain what are action grants and then tell us about the local organizations that receive those grants? Sure. And I, I will talk briefly about our grants program as a whole. So we offer a number of different grants. Um, about five or six different grants, depending on the year and what funding that we have available. Um, and some of those grants are our are, are action grants, which is, I call that our sort of our, our a catch-all grant. It's really the most versatile grant. It offers up to $3,000 for any type of humanities programming. Um, it could be exhibits or author talks or things like that. There's really not a whole, other than making sure that it goes to public humanities programming, there's not a whole lot of stipulation around um, the content. You can really come up with a creative range of ideas and propose to us. Um, that is a grant that we get out. Um, we have the biggest pool of funds for that action grant, and the goal is to get that out around across the state. I will also point out just so your listeners know, we do have some other more specific grants. For example, we have a grant that's um, really the goal is to use the humanities as a way to have conversations around race and ethnicity and some of the issues that we still still deal with in our society around race and ethnicity. We also have another grant um, that's specifically for promoting historic structures in the state and especially the need to preserve them and protect them. Uh, so we, we have a number of grants, some of them with specific topics that they go toward. But the action grant is, as I mentioned, our most versatile grant. It's our most popular grant. Uh, it offers $3,000, again, for just a wide range of humanities programming that could be, as I mentioned, exhibits, or it could be lectures. You might want to do a historic walking tour of your downtown. You might want to do a podcast. Uh, it can be used for a, a range of things. And again, this is a grant that we want to um, make readily accessible. Uh, we offer it every single month. Most of our other grants are available only once or twice a year. But the action grant we make available every month. And the goal is to get that widely across the state. And we have in the past several years uh, really been trying to invest a lot of energy in building relationships up in northwest Indiana. And while in this latest round, there, there are two grants that we've given out. Um, over the past few years, we've really done, a, a, I think, a fairly good job of building connections and getting some funding up in your part of the state. So you specifically asked me about the, the organizations that got action grants in the most recent rounds. Um, the couple of them are, the, the two I should say, are um, the Association for the Wolf Lake Initiative, that's in Whiting, and they do a program that's called um, Calumet Revisited, and that is actually a program that we've supported for several years now. Um, they put on a series of programs once a month um, with topics related to Northwest Indiana of interest, and most of them do tie to the humanities. Uh, that might be programs like the Underground Railroad in Northwest Indiana, the history of the steel mills, history of music in the region. Um, sometimes it's looking at different cultural groups that have settled there. There's a lot of natural history as well. Um, in that series. And then the other organization we've done a lot of work with in the past few years, that is the Morning Bishop Theater Playhouse, located in Gary. A woman named McKenna Dilworth runs that. And she has done a really interesting job of taking historical 
not, not always historical, um, sometimes historical texts, sometimes books about historical events or sometimes novels. And she'll do a community-wide read where she'll have um, people read the text, she'll provide copies, and then they have discussions around it. And most of those conversations deal with with racial issues. Uh, for example, right now, she the, the most recent grant she got is to, to, to read a, a book about Claudette Colvin, who was an early civil rights activist that is not very well known. Um, she's also done readings around the novel Native Son by Richard Wright, and then another a text that she's used is a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. I think it was called The Other America, uh, which is not one of his better known speeches, but an interesting speech. So McKinney uh, takes these texts, um, she provides them to the community, and then she facilitates and gets other people to facilitate reading and discussions around them. And sometimes that's in person, sometimes that's via Zoom, sometimes she'll work with a local radio station and she'll have a broadcast discussion about it. So she does a creative job of getting the the conversations out in in a variety of different media. So in the time that we have left, I just wanted to ask you, because we're speaking about the action grants today, Mm -hmm. and you alluded to a little earlier about all of the other grants that are available through Indiana Humanities, including the collaboration grant as well as the innovation grant. So So if I am in the humanities space right now, and I'm interested in finding out more information about applying for the action grant, as you shared is available monthly. Give me information on how I can apply for a grant and if there are any strict stipulations for any of the grants. Sure. What I would say is if you're interested in a grant, the very best place to start would be our website, indianahumanities.org. There's a grants tab on that webpage, and that lists all of the different grants that we have available. And you can click on the particular grants. We've got the call for proposals up, which offer guidelines of what sort of projects the grants fund. It has stipulations about what's permissible, what's not permissible. Um, That the website provides a lot of great information. It has some basic information. If you're applying for the first time, this is sort of what you're going to need. And a lot of that is spelled out. Now, if you're not a web person, if, if that's not um, what you're, how you gather information, then I would say just give me a call. I'm always glad to um, talk to people uh, and discuss over the phone uh, with them. But I think you also asked me, you know, what, what sort of things are allowed and what are not permit, permitted with the grants. And I will say across the board, all of the, the programs that we support have to be public programs. So they have to be open to the public at large. It can't be for an exclusive group. So, uh, you know, if you're a private uh, country club and you have a members-only event, that would not be eligible for programming. It has to be open to the public at large. We do make exceptions for schools and prisons and things like that. Uh, but Generally speaking, the, pro- the program that you seek funding for has to be open to the public. It does, of course, have to focus on the humanities. And I would encourage people to give me a call or reach out to me, email me. If there's ever any question about whether a program would fall into the realm of the humanities, because I understand there's a lot of confusion around that. The organizations that do receive grants from us have to be tax-exempt groups. So, um, you know, nonprofit groups, libraries, museums, historical societies, government agencies are, are able to get grants from us, churches, schools, oh. things like that. Uh, you just have to be tax-exempt. Generally speaking, we don't have grants available for individuals or for for-profit entities. 
Although I will say that on occasion, we do offer a research grant, and we actually have implemented a research grant recently called the Wilma Gibbs Moore Fellowship that funds research in African-American humanities topics. And that does go, we do provide that to individual researchers. But that's the exception with the, with the research grants. But generally speaking, the rest of our grants have to go to, to tax-exempt groups. Indiana Humanities connects people, opens minds, and enriches lives by creating and facilitating programs that encourage Hoosiers to think, read, and talk. You can find out more by visiting www.indianahumanities.org. George Hamlin is the Director of Grants. George, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking, sharing all of the information about Indiana Humanities. You're welcome, Dee. It's been a delight, and I do encourage listeners, if they have an idea for a humanities program, to, to reach out to us and give us a call, email us, look at our website, and we'd be glad to talk about your ideas. Between them, the Indiana Dunes State Park and the Indiana Dunes National Park bring in 5 million visitors annually, and that's just as many visitors as Yellowstone National Park. Congress passed and former U.S. President Donald Trump signed the bipartisan Great American Outdoors Act in the summer of 2020. The law guaranteed full and permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, but it also directed billions toward deferred maintenance needs on public lands. Now, an infusion of $16 million from the Great American Outdoors Act will allow for investment in historical structures at the region's national park. Joining us today to talk about what this effort will mean for not only the park's visitors, but also the preservation of natural resources, is Paul Labovitz, Superintendent for the Indiana Dunes National Park. Paul, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. I appreciate your interest. So, Paul, the Indiana Dunes National Park is 15,000 acres compared with Yellowstone National Park, which sits at 2 million acres. And yet each park receives the same number of visitors. So to what do you attribute so many visitors right here in the region at the Indiana Dunes National Park? Well, yeah, it's, uh, if, you, if you know your geography, Yellowstone is in Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, where there's not many people. And here we sit within sight and driving distance of about 11 million people with Chicago. So this is a very easy national park to visit. And I understand there's been an uptick in visitors to the Indiana Dunes National Park since things began to open up during the pandemic, correct? Yes. Our visitation has doubled over the last couple years. We attribute that to uh, the pandemic advice suggesting people go out to a park and get outside to exercise and refresh. And uh, also with the National Park Service name change from National Lakeshore to National Park, there's a lot more people stopping here. The passage of the Great American Outdoors Act, which received bipartisan support, I might add, was about creating a fund that was dedicated solely to deferred maintenance. Indiana Dunes National Park received $16 million. So can you tell us about some of the projects that are planned to make use of these funds? And I understand that the money will be divided between three historic buildings, correct? Correct. We, we had submitted a request <clears throat> within the National Park Service for a total of $30 million, and we were approved to receive $16 million, of which $12 million will come directly to three construction projects here in the park to, um, to preserve and restore and get along the path to actively reuse the House of Tomorrow, in partnership with Indiana Landmarks in Beverly Shores, it's one of the Century of Progress homes. 
The Bailey Homestead, which is a national historic landmark, which we're uh, working with uh, other partners like Indiana Landmarks to potentially uh, adaptively reuse for uh, an ongoing useful purpose. And then the um, the Goodfellow Lodge, which is on the campus of the Dunes Learning Center. And hopefully its renovation will provide much-needed laboratory, office, and meeting space for the Dunes Learning Center. In my preparation for our conversation today, I found out something that I thought was totally cool about the master craftsmen that will soon be deployed to do the work and the repairs at not only the Indiana Dunes National Park, but at smaller parks across the nation as well. So can you take a moment to talk about the maintenance action teams and where they will be housed as they make repairs and upgrades in places that can't normally support staff? Yeah, so as part of the National Park Service response to the Great America Outdoors Act, we realized we couldn't fund all the projects that needed to be done. So we're creating, as an agency, these maintenance action teams, which will be a collection of um, maintenance employees, craftsmen, who will be centrally located at a park like Indiana Dunes, but then will be made available to some of the smaller national parks you know, within driving distance and allow those parks to tackle some of their maintenance backlog on their historic buildings. Where they'll be living here, these will be people whose permanent job location is northwest Indiana. So like all of our employees here, they'll, they'll figure out where they'd like to live and settle down. But their, their job, day-to-day job, will involve work not only at Indiana Dunes, but at a bunch of other national parks in several different states. Uh, So you shared that the funds that were received from the Great American Outdoors Act will not be enough to support the planned work at Indiana Dunes National Park. But can it support some of the top things that are on the wish list? Yeah, we we had originally submitted, I think, upwards of over eight buildings for that original $30 million project. And we had to pare the project down when the funding that we requested was not fully received. But we're confident that over the years, as we're successful, with those three buildings that either through additional Great America Outdoors Act funding or other fund sources, we'll be able to ultimately get the work done. We're speaking with Paul Labovitz, Superintendent, Indiana Dunes National Park. So, Paul, up until recently... There's never been a fee to enter the park, but at the beginning of the spring season, the Indiana Dunes National Park instituted a park entry fee. So first, how has it gone in terms of visitors paying the entry fee? And then to that point, what are the funds actually used for? Sure, that's a good question. Um, we This is the first year of a new entry fee. We've collected, as of right now, just over $1.5 million dollars. And our, our mandate for um, entry fees, entry fee revenue, is that we're required to spend 55% of that on our maintenance backlog. So some of this work that we're not able to get done with Great America Outdoors Act funding, we'll be able to do with some of the entry fee money. Uh, the compliance with the entry fee has been, you know, I think among, it's been good. We have not really enforced it as rigorously as you might think. But we're giving our visitors this year as a transition year to get used to the change of having to have an entry fee. And I think most folks have complied. And um, I think we're we're actually talking about getting the word out that 
the the 2022 recreation season is about over, and we've been pretty um, laid back about making sure you've complied with the new entry fee, but expect that next year that we'll be a little more serious about requiring that. The Great American Outdoors Act funding has allowed land management agencies to begin to address the country's more than $25 billion in deferred maintenance backlog across all national parks. And while the $16 million earmarked for the Indiana Dunes National Park sounds like a lot, it seems like there are so many construction and revitalization projects that need to be done. And you alluded to earlier that the $16 million, while it is a lot of money, that it won't cover everything on that wish list. So I just have to ask you, what are some of those other Indiana Dunes National Park wish list projects? Yeah, we're, we're trying to complete the unfinished sections of what's called the Marquette Greenway, which is a bike trail that will connect Michigan and, and Illinois through northwest Indiana. We're trying to implement some other transportation enhancements. We're about to release a uh, website that will show you real-time parking lot availability at all of our beach parking lots so that visitors can better plan their trips here. Uh, we're working with several of our partner communities on planning and building what we call complete streets concepts, which uh, means a bicycle and pedestrian facility that parallels some of the beach access roads and trail access roads. And we're starting out at Porter Beach and the Coles Bog Trail. Um, I mean, we, we have a lot of, uh, we're working with the rideshare companies on places where people can park a car and Uber or Lyft into the park. Um, there's just a whole lot of uh, transportation and congestion management things we're trying so that the visit the visitor has a better experience when they come here. They have more tools to plan a trip. And when they get here, they can maximize their time enjoying the park rather than uh, waiting for a parking space. And finally, Paul, the Great American Outdoors Act ensures more people have access to nature because, after all, our nation's public lands are for everyone. So in the time that we have left, let's talk about how the work that will be done will make for a better fit for the needs of the 21st century, as you just alluded to. You know, we are located in a very busy part of the world, and we get a large number of visitors in a relatively small acreage. And so our, our challenges are always moving people around uh, in a way that's um, sensitive to the important resources and also provides people with, with good, well-thought-out and safe access to the park facilities. How can our listeners find out more information about the maintenance projects that are planned at the Indiana Dunes National Park? Our park website is really the best place to start when you think about information about the park, and that's nps.gov backslash indu. The indu is the first two letters of the first two names of our uh, first two words of our name, and so um, most national park websites are exactly that. nps.gov backslash, for example, Yellowstone is y e l l. Sleeping Bear Dunes is S-L-B-E. And it's a really neat little convention where you could go to mps.gov and then visit any national park in the system that way. Paul Labovitz is superintendent for the Indiana Dunes National Park. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Oh, thanks, Steve. Uh, anytime you have questions, give us a call.
Right here in our backyard, we have access to resources at the Indiana Dunes National Park as well as the Indiana Dunes State Park. And there are a lot of activities as well as events planned to help us all enjoy this outdoor resource. Joining us today to talk about the National Park as well as the exciting news of one of their volunteers receiving a national honor is Jim Whitenack, the Park Ranger Volunteer Program Manager at Indiana Dunes National Park. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Well, good morning, Dee. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So, Jim, you're here today to catch us up on the latest happenings at the Indiana Dunes National Park. And I understand that one of the park's VIPs recently received an award of distinction. Can you tell us about the award and what makes the volunteers so deserving of this recognition? Yeah, thanks, Dee. So, the recent volunteer, his name is Rob Albert Mallinger. He's a Porter resident. He just received the National Heart Dog Award from the National Park Service. This is a prestigious award that the Park Service hands out every year. And there's over 423 national park sites with over 300,000 300, volunteers at these sites. And Rob was the only one who won this particular individual award. Um, this award was actually started back in the 1960s by one of our previous directors named George Hartzog. He started this awards program back in the 1960s. And Rob received this award under the individual category, category for his leadership and work in making the East Branch of Little Calumet River more accessible to the public. So I became aware of this recognition just by scrolling social media, and I saw that many frequent visitors of the National Park shared enthusiasm for the award, as well as gratitude for the work that Rob and crew do making the East Branch of the Little Calumet River accessible to the public. So what has this work meant for how visitors can enjoy our natural resources at Indiana Dunes National Park? Yeah, great question, Dee. So the Little Calumet River has not been accessible for years now, and it's kind of a hidden gem of the park. Um, currently, we have about 11 miles that's currently open, and visitors now can paddle these 11 miles and kind of see some of this, this hidden resources that hasn't been open from the public for a while. So we're talking about your outstanding VIP or volunteer, but can you tell us about volunteer opportunities that are available at the park? I saw that the park superintendent added that there are so many ways to connect and support with your local national park. And in speaking about Rob, he spoke about how he epitomizes what it means to be a park volunteer, steward, neighbor, and friend. So can you tell us about volunteer opportunities for other members of the region? Yeah, absolutely. So if anyone gets, wants to get involved, I encourage them to go to, our, go to our website, okay? And that's at www.nps.gov. If you go there, um, you'll see that we have about 14 signature programs to offer to, to individuals of all abilities that can get involved in the park. Anything from doing um, programs like the River Crew, um, they can get out and get on the, on the trail crew, where they actually go out and they scout the trails. And they go out and they scout the trails and they report back on conditions. Um, that's another one. We also have simple programs like corporate corporations that can come out and they can do beach cleanups or, or work on invasive species. We have about 14 of these different programs that are available. So I'll just encourage you to check out our website and um, see what we have available. We're speaking with James Whitenack, Park Ranger Volunteer Program Manager with the Indiana Dudes National Park. So. Jim, for just a second, so we see this question being asked a lot, and it's that the usage of the word Indiana State Park and or Indiana National Park being used interchangeably as if they are both the same. Can you kind of take a, a moment just to give us the difference between the Indiana Dunes National Park and the Indiana Dunes State Park? So the Indiana State Park is actually run by the state of Indiana, Department of Natural Resources, and the National Park Service is run by the government. 
the federal government, National Park Service. So that's the big difference. Now, it's kind of unique that the state park is actually kind of located dead center, right, in around surrounded by the national park. Both beautiful places, very similar resources, mm-hmm. and um, I would encourage everyone to visit both of them. So it being right in the center, I guess that would make it how it would be so easy for people to just kind of use the name state park or national park interchangeably when they are, in fact, two uh, separate parks. So thank you for, for breaking that down for us. So I saw that the Indiana Dunes was recently named the best place to watch sunset in Indiana. Okay, so we're in the final weeks of summer and being able to truly enjoy the outdoors in warmer weather. So can you tell us about some of the activities that we can take advantage of at the Indiana Dunes National Park? I understand there is an outdoor uh, adventure festival coming up. Yeah, that is correct. So the, <clears throat> the outdoor adventure festival is coming up in October. It'd be, um, I'm sorry, to take that back, September, September 11th weekend. Um, 10th and 11th, and we have over 50 events people can get involved in, a lot of different outdoor recreation opportunities. If anyone's, in, I would encourage anyone to visit our website to learn more about that. They're interested in coming out and, and trying some new things. And are there any other events coming up? I, you know, as you, we begin to transition from <clears> summer <throat> to uh, the fall and winter season, are there any activities or anything, any opportunities that people can take advantage of to enjoy this natural resource? Absolutely. So, as you guys know, the fall colors are coming soon. That'll be probably in late October. I would encourage people to get out. Instead of going to our beaches, come out and hike our trails. Come see the fall colors. Jim Whitenack is the Park Ranger Volunteer Program Manager at the Indiana Dunes National Park. Jim, thank you so much for spending time with us on Regionally Speaking, telling us about your awesome volunteer, as well as ways that we can enjoy the natural resources at the Indiana Dunes National Park. Thank you, Dee. Appreciate it. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for today. Thanks to our guests from the Gary International Black Film Festival, Karen Toring, from the Indiana Dunes National Park, Paul Labovitz, and from Indiana Humanities, the Director of Grants, George Hanlon. And we'll be back with you tomorrow.